0: Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAS site, my website, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz or Banking Day. For the most exclusive access to leading economists and business leaders from around the world, subscribe to Talking Business from our website, leongettler.com. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the weeks using business finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 32 in our series for 2023, and today's episode is Friday, September the 8th. First, I'll be talking to Angus Ferguson, the Head of Customer Solutions at Domain, and I'll be talking to EY Oceania Chief Economist, Cheryl Murphy, about the latest inflation figures and what they mean going forward. But first, let's talk to
2: Angus Ferguson.
0: Well, Angus, tell us how your real estate data business translated across to
2: Domain. So it all first started, um, I was a real estate agent down in Melbourne, uh, and effectively, I was solving a problem for myself as the customer. And what that was is every time on a Saturday when you knocked an auction down, sold it or passed it in, whatever it might be, the outcome, you had to call four data houses. And that was Domain, REA, Property Data and Call Logic. On their side, they had a call center. It was sitting there waiting for the phone to ring or chasing agents to get the result at the end of the day. So if you had 10 auctions on that Saturday, you're potentially making 20 phone calls to report your auction results as well as to let your team know. So effectively what we went out and did was we built a tool that allowed us as agents at the very beginning was scribe bids on an iPad so we literally built technology that allowed you just write down the bids. It would translate that into a number in the background, store it, and then send that final sales price directly to all the different data houses with the disclosure that you had decided or decided with the vendor in order to streamline the process of the agent. From there, what we started to do is we got a bunch of agents and we I transitioned out of my, the real estate business I was running at that time, left it and went into startup land where earning $0 and doing all those crazy things of selling my car and my washing machine and everything else that I could think of to keep the business going with my business partner and agents started to come to us and they were saying you guys are so good at solving problems and building products off the back of it can you please have a look at other parts of our process and so what that led us to was different parts throughout their transactional journey. And the two products that we built off the back of it was a digital compliance tool, which is the ability for the agent to go into the living room with their iPad with all the compliance documentation to be able to sign up a listing and get the marketing and obviously secure the commission and all the terms and conditions that come with it. What we found out though, is that there's an extremely amount of rich data that sits off the back of that for both the agency to get better insights about how their agents are performing inside of their business. But also there's a lot of double and triple handling. So you, when an agent comes to your house and they list up, a list your property, the thing that they have to go back to the office is scan it in, And then send all that paperwork out to various different people like the solicitors back to the vendor uh, and let a whole bunch of people know within their business as well that they've listed a new property. So we were able to build that product and speed up a lot of the compliance and all the efficiency of the workflow and then build digital contracts that what that allowed us to do is... We built that uh, just before COVID, which was a good timing for us, Not, not so great timing in terms of being stuck in your home for a while, but it allowed us to continue to transact with agents and agents be able to sign up digital contracts of sale to transact for properties that they'd listed prior to COVID to allow buyers who couldn't otherwise come and see you in person to sign all the paperwork to do it from the comfort of their own home. So just before that, to, to answer your question, we had sold the business to Domain, got it to about 10% of all transactions in Australia, going through the platform in about four years from the date of when we built started building that first product to scaling it up to about 10% of all transactions.
0: So you've moved from startup status to now running a business at Domain?
2: I have. So I've been fortunate enough to be exposed to some really great leaders and extremely intelligent people inside of our organization, such as John Fung and and Jason Pellegrino, to name a few. And they've allowed me the opportunity to continue to grow my career and grow my capabilities. And what that's led me to is I run a team of about 100 people now across all different kinds of products. So I look after the product commercialization and product specialty teams for our core listing business. It does a little bit in excess of a couple hundred million real-time agents still, which is still the thing I'm, I'm passionate about. A price finder, which is a data product. Lead scope, which is a propensity model that allows us to help agents to identify their next listing faster, as well as a bunch of other tools as well. So really, I've remained the, the same enthusiasm, which is a customer first approach and try and build products off the back of that. But really my day-to-day job now has gone from what are being on the cold face to how do I inspire teams and make sure that our teams are working to a clear strategy and collaborating with the other functions inside of the business to create some really amazing outcomes for our customers.
0: And this is entirely proprietary technology that you've developed.
2: So we, we have, Domain is a, a pretty amazing business with Kind of gone from being a digital classified, which was, mm. as you know, the, the transition from print to digital. And it's been an extremely fast growing business. And that was something that domain developed. Domain's also acquired a lot of businesses over that time. Real Time Agent was obviously one of them. PriceFinder was another product that we acquired. Lead Scope is something that we actually have homegrown. We've developed ourselves through the different data data sets that we've got inside of our business. And been able to productize that to bring it back to to the clients in market as well. So I wouldn't I wouldn't put the claim to fame of building it all, but we certainly get the privilege of looking after it and trying to think up the future of what the strategy needs to look like for those products in the future.
0: That's fascinating because uh, what you've described is a business that's moved from classifieds to a high-tech
2: data yeah. company. Would yeah. that be right? Yeah, I think the, the way that we describe it to the market now is we're, we're, we're a marketplace. And so what that means to our client is we're on the – the path of we have these amazing products that are all standalone at the moment. None of them necessarily talk to each other. None of the data necessarily connects from a customer experience. And that's really our our challenge and the strategy for us is how do we create a connected suite of solutions that allow our customers to seamlessly transact a lot more efficient than they did yesterday. And really what that means for us is that we can help to be the essential partner to the real estate industry that allows us to also at the same time, what we hope for and strive for is if we build the best workflow, through technology and building an open ecosystem that allows them to plug in their own tools as well, that they'll be able to transact more properties by not necessarily having to put more cost in. And that allows us to actually get more listings on site as well.
0: Well, you'd have uh, several communities. I mean, you'd have investors and home buyers and all of that sort of stuff, but you'd also have real estate agents.
2: We do. Yeah. Yeah. So real estate agents, we we kind of have, if I step back and and look at the different customer segments that we have. We we service in data, which is for governments and banks and another more enterprise level. We then have consumers, which is split into kind of a variety of different categories, but the main two are buyers and vendors. And as you said before, within buyers is investors and there's landlords within vendors. And really the core customer that that I look after and passionate about is real estate agents. So that's the business owner. Uh, it's also the back of house staff of the, the marketing people, the administration people that actually the ones who are the engine room for that business to allow the agent to go out and do what they do best, which is find, win and sell more listings. And then obviously the real estate agent, which is how do we help them to be more professional and scale their businesses by not having to have carry on paper and not having to go back and forth to the office all day by leveraging technology.
0: Uh, how much of a challenge
2: has that been? So the challenge, the challenge has evolved actually. So you look at our industry, and probably ten years ago there wasn't a lot of technology. And fast forward to today, there's over three hundred and eighty prop tech companies in our segment alone. In our industry, being for real estate agents, so it's a innovation has far far exceeded the rate of how quickly our customers can adopt technology, the hardest and what the challenge now becomes is what is a tool or a toy in terms of the tech? Because not all of them are actually tools that are worthy of putting into your business. And then once you decide what that tool is, that one of the hardest things that, you know, even domain as a business we face is the change management that comes with it. How do you make sure that if you're going to invest in a piece of technology that you've got to be able to get an ROI on it? And so what that means is you've got to be able to get your people to adopt it embrace it and use it and be confident to be using it every single day as well.
0: That in itself would be a challenge, wouldn't it?
2: It is. It is. And it, it, the the role that we're trying to play is we're, we're extremely fortunate to have a lot of intelligent people inside of our business. So we've got a lot of product people, technology people, we've got strategy teams. And so for us, we leverage that for our customers and we allow our customers to get our insights into what are the right tools that you should be looking at to invest into your business, what are we going to integrate? Because we see a huge amount of value either to our business or also, also to our customers as well. And there's things that we're doing on the consumer side of the business as well. So things like before you bid. So when you go and buy a home, whether you're an investor or whether you're buying for a home ownership, you want to be able to figure out, is this house going to be solid? Is the foundation solid? Am I going to have to have be up for a huge amount of renovations and restumping straight after I buy it? And so there's been as a part of one of our proof points, which is we're an open ecosystem, we're integrated in with prop tech partners, such as Before You Bid, that allow our consumers to access and order building and pest inspection reports at scale.
0: And you'd also be teaching the agents how to develop the ROI
2: on that, wouldn't you? Where that is definitely something that we're, we're keen to look at, which is if a buyer is prepared to pay three or $400 to get a building and pest inspection, they would probably have a high propensity to buy that property and high intent. So we're working on how do we help our agents to find out of the 40 people that are inspected that property, who are the three or four that are actually worth your time to transact and, and nurture through the journey as well. And and your technology helps that? It does. It does. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. That's kind of what we're working on at the moment. I'd say that with our partners, like before you bid, they are able to serve that technology up and we leverage that in the relationship that we have with those third-party prop tech companies as well as provide the audience by having the integration onto the domain.com website yeah
0: right okay so i mean that's quite an extraordinary transition of domain it,
2: it is It's definitely an exciting exciting business to be a part of i think it's one of the things that's kept me around after they would bought my business is that it's a pretty fast evolving industry that with a lot of moving pieces and it's fortunate that it's in a category that just about every australian when you go to a barbecue he wants to talk to you about, which is home ownership and property.
0: indeed, indeed and uh, so you'd be you'd be quite adept at talking to them about that.
2: Yeah, yeah we uh, it's definitely a hot topic in any barbecue we go to is what's the property prices going to do, what's the RBA going to do next next month? what's what's the interest rates going to do? how many listings are we going to have this spring? Uh, It's always a hot topic, yeah. Well, Angus, that's fantastic, and thank you so much for your time. Uh, Thank you, and I appreciate you allowing me to come on.
0: And now let's talk to EY Oceania Chief Economist, Sherelle Murphy. Well, Sherelle, inflation has come down to 4.9% from 5.4%. That's encouraging. Uh, What's your view about that? Yeah, it's very encouraging. It's it's the monthly series, not the quarterly,
3: so it's not, um, I guess, the most perfect indicator of inflation that we have, but it's certainly heading in the right direction and, you know, at a reasonably good pace. Underlying inflation uh, didn't fall quite as much as the headline number, but I don't think we can take away from the fact that inflationary pressures do genuinely seem to be easing in the economy.
0: So what's the underlying rate of inflation, Cheryl?
3: Well, the underlying rate, if we measure it with the annual trimmed mean, is running at 5.6% in the year to July, and that's down from 6% in the year to June. So just a, a bit of an improvement there too.
0: Right. Okay. Okay. So it's heading in the right direction, uh, but it's still a long way from 2 to 3%.
3: It is, um, and certainly um, that is a challenge for the Reserve Bank because it sort of has to keep this momentum going. And when you think about the reasons that inflation has fallen over the last, uh, well, really since the end of last year, it's got a lot to do with those international factors like falling energy prices, falling food prices, falling transport prices. So we've kind of had the the free lunch, if you like, and so it's probably a little bit harder from here to get back down to the 2 to 3%. But you have to say that so far, so good. It is definitely heading in the right
0: direction. I, I would imagine it'd be a lot easier to get it down to about 4% but getting it down to 2-3% is going to be a bit of a challenge.
3: Well, that's right. Although it does depend on what's going on with some of the factors that have been more sticky in the economy. And if I was to sort of look forward into the next 12 months, I'd suspect that the labour market might be a source of challenge for the Reserve Bank in that sense, because clearly the labour market is still tight and wages growth is still rising. It's not particularly high but it's certainly still rising and we tend to see a bit of a lag there so that could be one of the factors that prove to be sticky which as you say I mean it's difficult to get it down sort of
0: from four to three percent. I think the RBA is uh, talking about 2025.
3: Yes, uh, on its current projections, it doesn't get inflation into the target band until mid-2025, and that's just at the top of the target band. So it itself expects this to take some time, but it also seems that it's kind of willing to tolerate that delay because, of course, there is a cost to trying to get it done faster than that, and the main cost would be higher unemployment. So it's kind of set a path. It's on the path. The path is looking pretty good. So if it can keep going at that rate, um, you know, I think it's going to
0: Execute a soft landing, as which is of course what we wanted to do. The latest unemployment figures—they uh, went marginally up. Marginally mm. up. They could go up. Michelle Bullock is talking about four percent. Mm, that's right. It's... Get inflation down. Uh, yeah. Could it be? Do
3: you see unemployment heading that way? it's very unlikely that it stays as low as it is. We'd probably classify the unemployment rate where it is at 3.7% as sort of more than full employment. So it's kind of just really representing people moving between jobs or people on holidays kind of waiting to start a new job. So there is, I guess, a little bit of room to move uh, the unemployment rate higher without it having too much of an impact However, of course, for those people that are affected, it is it is a big impact. So certainly not taking away from that factor. But a 3.7% unemployment rate is pretty incredible, and it's even lower in the big states of New South Wales and WA. So it, it's good, and unfortunately, it will go up. The trick here is for it to go up by the least amount possible while also getting inflation down.
0: And uh, certainly if it goes up, the idea would be Unemployment goes up, inflation goes down.
3: Yes, that's right. And those two are clearly, you know, a very strong relationship empirically. And we know that that does tend to happen. It is possible this cycle that we can hold on to a lower unemployment rate because employers have recently had uh, experience of what it's like to not be able to find all the workers that they need. And clearly, we also have strong population growth, which is still kind of causing Obviously, more labour supply, but also more demand in the economy. So there's lots to do. There's lots of infrastructure to build. There's lots of government services to provide. And I sort of just get the feeling that the economy's just got that underlying momentum from that. Employers are very reluctant to get rid of staff. And there's a bit of labour hoarding going on. So that all bodes well for the labour market and hopefully an unemployment rate that doesn't go too high in the next 12 months.
0: Migration rates are only about 2.5% at the moment and the housing market's running about 1.5% which would indicate that housing inflation is going to continue to be an Mm. issue. Would you agree with that?
3: Yeah most definitely. Uh, It's certainly established house prices obviously don't fit into the CPI so uh, that's not part of the, the sort of you know, the Reserve Bank's task as such. But rents, yeah, clearly they are in the CPI. The cost of building a house is in the CPI. And these are from population growth, at least likely to continue to remain under upward pressure. But there probably also will be a bit of a change in housing market structures. So for example, we might see more people willing to share in rental accommodation than we have in the recent past. Um, and uh, unfortunately for us, Parents with teenage children less likelihood that they move out. So there is uh, <laughs> there is likely to be, I think, some change just in that household structure, which will also contribute and will act, I think, to keep just that little bit of pressure off rental and housing prices. Although it's probably only at the margin.
0: So where do you see this leave the RBA? I mean, surely it means the RBA won't be having any rate hikes this year.
3: I wouldn't say surely, but certainly it's looking more likely. Uh, the 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 CPI reading certainly gives them a chance to sort of sit pat for a little longer. Um, I would be very surprised if they did increase interest rates next week. Um, that's the that's for the September meeting. And the likelihood that they need to increase rates later in the year is looking probably less necessary. I would say, as we said at the beginning, though there are reasons that inflation can be sticky on the downside um, and this is something that they might need to battle later on but at the moment as I say so far so good and everything's going to plan and if it keeps doing that then there's no need for more rate hikes.
0: but there's uh, certainly there's a domestic pressures on inflation like wages and uh, housing and rents and stuff like that those will continue
3: they will, but, you know, we have to remember that there's things that are going in the other direction too. So, you know, there's some some lumpy things that just go up and down all the time. There are also factors, you know, which may actually come down in price. And we've seen, you know, some tech continue to fall in price. We've seen certainly the price of holidays has gotten less uh, or the, the inflation rate is less. They're not getting cheaper, but they're going up by less. Mm. And then, you know, we can see factors administrate administered factors so this is where the government
4: if you're looking for plump lips that last you need to know about Juvederm lip fillers
1: that's borough.com slash ACAST. borough.com slash ACAST.
3: Government puts price, either kind of assistance into the market that kind of go in and out of the market and can cause prices to fall as well. So it's not necessarily all up. Clearly, the Reserve Bank has to look carefully at each of these factors to determine whether or not it is heading in the right direction or not, but it's it's a complicated story and I wouldn't say necessarily just because rents are going up and wages are going up that we continue to have an ongoing inflation problem.
0: Yeah, so the RBA would be quite cognizant of it at the same time.
3: Absolutely, yeah, yeah. And that's why they will, you know, they will look through some items, as we say, you know, some of the electricity price rises, that we have seen of late, including in July, will probably be looked through in the sense that the RBA doesn't necessarily expect them to continue at that rate. So that's the sort of factors that it considers when it's putting together its own CPI forecasts and therefore its sort of long-term position in terms of where it needs to get interest rates to.
0: Yeah, and but I noticed that Powell the other week was saying that uh, the Fed will continue to look at raising rates until mm. they get inflation down. What what miss what signal is that sending the RBA? Look, it's
3: it's it's important for central bankers to not give the market any indication that they're done with raising rates when they're not 100% sure that they are, <laughs> because you know clearly they don't want the market to start pricing in either a flat rate trajectory or indeed falls, which has been the case in the US. So the signalling from central bank speakers, incredibly important here, and they will always play that conservatively. So, you know, Powell's doing it in the US. I would be very surprised if the next speech that we got from the Reserve Bank governor here did not mention the risk that inflation remains high and the need to maintain a sort of vigilant outlook remains the case, and therefore there might be more rate hikes on the horizon. They're going to hold that line until they're absolutely convinced that they're out of the woods, and clearly they're not yet.
0: Right. And uh, so according to the RBA projection, we won't be out of those woods till at least 2025. That's right.
3: You know, that's the point at which the, the forecasts have the CPI getting back to the target band. As long as it's above, there, there is some danger that they, they don't get there. And they you know clearly will not give any indication to the market that they're comfortable until they're clear that things are going exactly as they need them to.
0: OK, so the RBA will be just keeping a watching brief on inflation.
3: Absolutely. And which it always is, of course, but um, there are some times that that Brief is, I guess, a little more complicated than others, and at the moment we're definitely going through one of those periods. Of course, we haven't had inflation like this in in many decades prior to this current situation, which, of course, was generated by COVID and all the fiscal and monetary stimulus that was put in place. So it's a it is an unusual period, um, and it's certainly one where the RBA is not going to be taking any risks, um, and they will not tolerate uh, the CPI being above three percent for too much longer.
0: So that would indicate that if this continues if it stays above three percent
3: that that's right that's right although as i say they will give they will give themselves a bit of time to get there but you know that's that's two sort of two almost two years away before they uh, expect that to happen so it is going to be a very interesting two years as we watch watch that cpi number uh, month to month and then the more important quarter to quarter data which gives us a more full picture of how prices are moving throughout the economy
0: where do you expect the quarter-to-quarter data will be next time?
3: Um, look, it's looking, again, it's looking pretty good so far, but there's a lot of lumpiness, particularly in electricity prices at the moment with some rebates in the market. So it's, it's it can be quite difficult to, to read through that. But I'd be very surprised if that quarterly number is not coming down quite nicely again you know, towards the 5% mark. Uh, and, and, you know, that's exactly again in line with what the RBA will be thinking but you know there's a lot of things that can go wrong between now and then too.
0: Okay okay well Sherelle thank you
3: very much for your time. Pleasure Leon always good to be here.
0: So what's happening in the news? Well China's biggest banks are extending billions of dollars to Russia as sanctions pressure Western leaders to exit the country. Since Moscow's invasion of Ukraine in February 2022 Western regulators have cracked down on Russia by imposing sanctions and urging banking institutions to pull back on operations in the country. Chinese lenders are now filling the gap. The four biggest banks in China have quadrupled their exposure to Russia's banking sector since the war in Ukraine began, according to data analyzed for the FT by the Kiev School of Economics. Bank of China Limited, Industrial and Commercial Bank of China Limited, China Construction Bank Corp., and Agricultural Bank of China Limited had a combined exposure of $2.2 billion at the start of 2022. Russian Central Bank shows this increased to almost $10 billion in the 14 months to the end of March this year. And Australia's central bank kept its key interest rate unchanged and maintained a tightening bias as Governor Philip Lowe wrapped up his final meeting at the helm with inflation in retreat. The Reserve Bank held its cash rate at 4.1% for a third straight meeting on Tuesday in a decision widely anticipated by markets and economists. The consecutive pauses imply a higher hurdle for any further hikes and suggest a surprise shift in economic data will be needed to prompt additional tightening. And Qantas boss Alan Joyce will step down from his post after 15 years, two months earlier than originally scheduled, after a horror fortnight for the carrier. Incoming Chief Executive Vanessa Hudson will take the reins of the embattled carrier on Wednesday. After Joyce advisory the Airlines Board, he will bring forward his departure to help the company move ahead. In the last few weeks, the focus on Qantas and events of the past make it clear to me that the company needs to move ahead with its renewal as a priority, Joyce said. Follows a tumultuous week for Qantas. Last Monday, Joyce faced a fierce grilling from a sending quarantine before the ACCC launched action in the federal court against the airline on Thursday, alleging the airline sold tickets for flights had already been cancelled. Qantas shares have sunk more than 12% over the past month, as the investors weigh the impact of a $15 billion upcoming capital expenditure bill that his successor, Vanessa Hudson, will inherit, as well as potential fines of as much as $250 million being pursued by the competition watchdog. Mr Joyce has been a divisive figure during his tenure winning kudos through investors through his decisive management through turbulent times in global aviation over the past 15 years as CEO. Qantas also finds itself in the eye of a political storm over in, in lobbying the Labour government to block its key competitor in flights, in, on flights into Europe, Qatar Airways. It is estimated Joyce will walk away with up to $24 million in final cash and share payout. Qantas is under pressure from shareholders to recover some of Mr Joyce's bonuses after a 15-year career during which a chief executive was paid $125 million. Australian Shareholders Association chief executive Rachel Waterhouse said potentially more heads needed to roll the flag carriers board over the handling of a string of crises including Mr Joyce's golden handshake of $24 million. Ms. Waterhouse said questions remained overboard oversight of Mr. Joyce's remuneration package. She said the departure of Mr. Joyce was a good start, but more action was needed by Qantas to improve transparency. And the Forest Empire has lost another two top executives adding to the list of growing departures. It is has parted ways with the Chief Executive of Hospitality and Lifestyle Arm Z1Z and Minkor Resources boss Gabriel M- Ivanov. is also packed bags. The departure of International Hotelier used Heimeyer at Z1Z adds to a growing list of top executives to have left both Forest Control Fortescue Metals Group and the family's private-owned businesses controlled by Tatarang. Ms Ivanov is leaving tatarang owned Wailu Metals later this month after opting not to stay long-term in the wake of Wailu's $760 million acquisition of Nickel Mine and mincor. In a note to start, Wailu boss Luca Jikovazi said Ms Ivanov was leaving to pursue other opportunities and praise her efforts in the transition to Wailu ownership. Ms Ivanov has been running nickel mines near Kambalda in WA, acquired as part of the takeover of Minkor earlier this year. Mr Giacobazzi said last month that the mines have been running at capacity since June, and major customer BHP had accepted all deliveries in a sign that product quality issues are now under control. Wailu has hired Steve Price, the former General Manager of Underground Mining at Rio Tinto's Utolgoi Copper Mine, to run the Kambalda operations. Miss Ivanov, who took over at Mincor last November after a stint at Oz Minerals, declined to comment on Tuesday, but is understood to be leaving on good terms. Mr Highmeyer, who was hired in June in 2022 as the inaugural chief of Z1Z to grow and run a portfolio that includes Byron Bay's Gaya Retreat and Spa formerly owned by Olivia Newton-John, Cape Lodge in La- Yallingup, WA, and Lizard Island in northern Queensland. In a social media post, Mr Highmeyer suggested he had departed the Tatarang Group due to a change of directions by the owners and was now looking for work. Sometimes things don't always work out and then it is time to move on, he posted. Dutch-born Highmeyer made his name in Australian hospitality as general manager of the award-winning Morgan Valley Resort and Spa in the Blue Mountains. Tattering is merging Z1Z with five-freight property arm led by former Murvac executive Paige Walker, who, when hired, was tasked with the delivery of Australia's first Waldorf Astoria hotel at One Circular Quay in Sydney and other major projects. Alan Ford remains general manager of Z1Z. Tattering parted ways with Paul Slaughter, the chief executive of his agriculture business Harvest Road, last week, and the leadership shake-up within the privately owned businesses has coincided with Andrew and Nicola Forrest confirming their separation after 31 years of marriage. The former couple, both now multi-billionaires, have said they remain strategically aligned on the future of Fortescue, Tatarang and the family's philanthropic Mindoroo Foundation. Fortescue Metals was rocked last week by the departure of Chief Executive Fiona Hick and Chief Financial Officer Christine Morris after short-lived stints at the Iron ore Mine. They became the 10th and 11th top executives to leave Fortescue within three years. And the Albanese government has introduced its closing loopholes Industrial Relations Bill, estimated to provide labour hire workers after to $511 million a year more pay. Unions welcomed the bill, but opposed concessions watering down its promise of same job, same pay in the labour hire industry, including the blank exemption for small businesses. With employer backlash brewing over these provisions, the workplace relations minister, Tony Burke, opened up a new front by revealing truck owner drivers could be awarded minimum rates of pay by the industrial umpire. Big business labelled that a repeat of the disaster of the Road Safety Remuneration Tribunal, an industrial umpire that was controversially abolished by the coalition in 2016. On Monday, Burke introduced a closing loopholes bill to the House of Representatives, confirming Labor would seek to revive minimum conditions in the road transport industry. Burke said the bill was needed to close loopholes that have undercut secure jobs, better pay and safe workplaces. If passed, the Fair Work Commission would gain the power to set minimum standards for the road transport industry and he disputes about unfair contract terminations. The Commission would have discretion on what the minimum standards would cover, but must be satisfied that its orders would not adversely affect the viability or competitiveness of road transport contracted drivers. The Power to set conditions in the road transport industry is one plank of a bill that includes provisions to criminalise wage theft, improve the right to secure jobs for permanent casuals, provide equal pay for labour hire workers and give minimum conditions to keep economy workers. The requirement to pay labour hire workers the same rates of pay as those who are directly employed on enterprise agreements could add $511 million to business costs transferred to workers in the form of higher pay. The Bill's most controversial section will ensure labour-hire workers are paid at least the same full rate of pay, including base rates, penalty rates, bonuses, overtime and allowances, as a host company's direct workforce gets in their enterprise agreement. However, the government has limited its initial proposal, so unions will have to first apply for a labour-hire pay order and have introduced a fair and reasonable test. The bill has already provoked a fierce reaction from employer groups, which have warned it will increase complexity and cost for consumers. The Australian Chamber of Commerce and Industry Chief Executive, Andrew McKellar, said the only winners in this are union chiefs. And income tax cuts in return for lifting the goods and services tax rates to 15% would deliver high-income households an average $2,140 a year at the expense of lower income and older people, according to economic modelling by Australian National University. The analysis suggests that a tax mix switch. From personal income to the GST, as suggested by some independent MPs and tax reform advocates following the intergenerational Report, IGR, could not be done in a revenue-neutral way for the Federal Government. A large amount of extra financial compensation would need to be paid to lower-income people, including asset-rich retirees, to avoid people being worse off. A new economist Ben Phillips said. He said the ten percent GST currently raising about eight hundred eighty six billion dollars a year would probably need to increase in the future to collect more revenue for services as part of a broader tax reform package, but the inequities of a higher GST would make such a change politically very difficult. And the Australian arm of one of the world's biggest hotel businesses and most recognisable brands, Hilton Worldwide, is locked in a battle with the tax office over allegedly unpaid taxes and amid accusations that it set up a scheme to deliberately minimise its tax in Australia. Hilton, the company founded by magnate Conrad Hilton, the great-grandfather of socialite and reality TV star Paris Hilton, in July launched legal action against the Australian Taxation Office in the Federal Court to dispute an assessment that found it owed $18.7 million in unpaid taxes as well as penalties and interest. The 2022 accounts for Hilton's Australian business, filed with the corporate regulator, show the ATO believes the company owes $51 million in taxes over the sale of its flagship Hilton Sydney property in 2015. According to the accounts, the ATO has also sought $13 million in penalties and $15.7 million in interest from the company. Hilton has agreed, according to its accounts, to pay an instalment of $26 million to the ATO in response to the claim, Hilton, which opened its first hotel in Australia. 1960 and operates 18 hotels across the country today, offloaded its 595-room Sydney Hilton property to Chinese Investment House, Bright Ruby, in May 2015 for $442 million. Hilton's notice of appeal against a tax assessment filed in the federal court confirms that the dispute relates to a capital gain allegedly not recorded by Hilton. In 2015, The court has redacted the amount still in dispute from the documents. Hilton's notice of appeal of its tax assessment shows that under the ATO's anti-avoidance powers, authorities have accused the company of using a business structure and scheme designed to avoid tax. Hilton said in its court filing that the ATO was wrong to make this assumption and that it had not sought to avoid tax by setting up a scheme to manage its Australian income. And the corporate regulator will launch legal action against Westpac on Tuesday, alleging it failed to respond to requests from hundreds of its customers struggling with loan repayments over a seven-year period who wanted to enter into hardship arrangements with the bank. The Australian Securities Investments Commission will allege that between 2015 and 2022, 229 customers told the bank they were experiencing financial hardship, including due to an inability to work, the impact of medical conditions or care responsibility, but a deficiency with its online hardship notice process resulted in them not receiving a response to their request within the required time of 21 days. ASIC will allege this breach, the National Credit Code, which stipulates lenders have three weeks to notify customers if they do not agree to change the lending contract or need additional information to decide. It will also argue Westpac failed to act efficiently, honestly and fairly by not responding to the reasonable request from customers. Westpac apologised for the incident. The bank said it had identified the incident, self reported to ASIC, and had cooperated with its investigation. This error meant we didn't provide some of our customers with the help they needed. For this, we are deeply sorry, Westpac Chief Info- Information Officer Scott Colery said. While we have assisted some of these customers in subsequent contact, it is not good enough that we missed their initial attempt to get in touch. Westpac said it received a total of 630,000 hardship requests over the same seven-year period and it were due. And the 229 non-responses were due to a technology failure that meant the notices were not passed through the bank's customer support teams. The civil penalty proceeding in the Federal Court is the latest in a series of disputes between ASIC and Westpac after the bank was previously targeted for alleged breaches of responsible lending laws. Responding to the latest legal dispute, Westpac said it had remediated the affected customers, including refunding some fees and interest, or in some cases waiving debts and making compensation payments for non-financial losses, totaling $900,000. The action comes a week after ASIC wrote to 30 large lenders, including the four major banks, calling on them to support customers experiencing financial hardships as cost of living pressures rise. Financial hardship will be an area of increased focus for the corporate regulator over the next 12 months, it said. Sharp interest rate rises stretch borrowers. ASIC is aware of increasing evidence suggesting some consumer cohorts are experiencing financial distress and hardship due to increased cost of living pressures, ASIC Commissioner Daniel Press wrote. There had been a 28% rise in calls to the National Debt Hotline this year, and hotline dry days caused by a looming El Nino weather pattern are forecast to wipe $12 billion off the value of agricultural production this financial year. The Australian Bureau of Agricultural and Resource Economics and the Sciences, Abaris, expects less rain and a projected drop in global commodity prices to cause the value of agricultural output to fall 14% to $80 billion this financial year. A 20% decline in crop production is forecast to drive the decline in output, Abaris Executive Director Jared Greenville said. Falling production volumes and lower global commodity prices will contribute to a forecast 17% fall in agricultural exports to $65 billion. The Bureau of Meteorology, BOM, has issued an El Nino alert, which has historically been followed by the development of an actual El Nino 70% of the time. The possibility of an El Nino follows record-breaking winter weather, with a country enduring the warmest June, July and August since records began in 1910, according to the BOM. And that's it for this week. And next week I'll be talking to Belinda Sinclair from Domain. And RMIT Professor Sinclair Davidson will give his view about the generational report. For the most exclusive access to leading economists and business leaders from around the world, subscribe to Talking Business from my website leongetler.com. If you like Talking Business, please leave us a review with Apple Podcasts. Thank you in advance. In the meantime, you can catch me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube. And if you want, leave a comment. The most exclusive access to leading economists and business leaders from around the world, subscribe to Talking Business on the Apple Podcast Store or on my website, leongettler.com. If you want to contact me, email me at leon at I answer all emails. Wishing you all a safe and healthy week and looking forward to bringing you Talking Business next week. Hey, folks, I'm Mark
1: Maron from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultrasoft Tissues